0: Good morning. My name is Clancy Imslin, and I'm an alcoholic. Welcome to the uh, final marathon meeting. I would like to uh, ask, just to punish myself, Sherali, to lead us in the serenity prayer. Start it off, please. God, grant me the serenity. To accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change yourself, you can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you. That was beautiful, Shirella. Uh I was supposed to introduce my co-leader, but they assigned me no co-leader. I guess they just figured a, a schizophrenic is enough. I'm having a wonderful time at this convention. So am I. The uh, (laughs) uh, brown noser. Is there any change out of that five? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I've asked uh, Patty G to read the twelve steps. No, this isn't Johnny's
1: meeting. (laughs) I'm Patty Graff. I'm an alcoholic. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. 5. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. 6. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. 7. Humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. 8. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 9. Made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only knowledge for His will of us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs.
0: Very good. Thank
1: you. <laughs> I've asked John G. to read the 12
0: Traditions. <laughs> now, now I'll do it. <laughs>
2: My name is John Graff, and I'm an alcoholic. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself and our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups, or AA as a whole. 5. Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. 6. An AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. 7. Every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. 8. Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, AA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need to always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities.
0: There's one thing I'd like to call the attention of the Marathon Chairman, or who's ever in charge uh... in the twelve steps the 12th step is not printed correctly i don't know how this happened it says having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps we tried to carry this message to others and that is not the, what it says in alcoholics anonymous it says to uh, alcoholics we, the idea of carrying it to others who are not alcoholics is lethal for people like us it truly is. It truly is. It cost the Washingtonians their existence 150 years ago. And my friend John H. crossed that up and put it in alcoholics, but I'm surprised it lasted all weekend before somebody noticed it. This, um, incidentally, these young people who read this morning, John and Patty, they are married, and they're both rather intense personalities, and uh, before they got spiritual, they really used to have some terrible knockdown drag out fights. Terrible. And it's our philosophy here that uh the family that bleeds together reads together. Yeah. The topic for this meeting is but my case is different. Now this uh, this marathon. Some of you are new, may not understand what the marathon is kind of about. Marathons are relatively new, and they not relatively new, I guess, but uh, they were started at this convention. How long? 20 years ago? About 20 years ago? How long? 72. Well, I can't work that out. 26 years ago. And they were started by a guy named Chuck Nisbet and Keith. And they started these, and because they felt there was a need in conventions for sometimes for people for, who needed a place to go when they, were, when they were full of something or had to go somewhere, just get off the sidewalk or something because all the excitement, and especially when you're new, it's really overpowering a big convention. And they started this as kind of a test to see if it would work and it worked rather well of course and over the years it got to be quite good and uh, and got some customs and as a matter of fact in 1980 it had worked so well that the world service conventions asked us to start a marathon at the international convention and they have a marathon at the international convention now and uh... chuck and keith went down to new orleans in 1980 we all helped them get it set up and they had this Every time it goes, it's been very well attended because people sometimes you just need somewhere to get, to sit down and not have to be anything or do anything or feel anything, just be part of something. The uh, and this marathon this uh, this weekend has been much the same. It started Friday with step one, and then over the past two and a half days, it's been a series of the slogans and the twelve steps the, and the actions of AA and people have gotten up at five in the morning to talk about sponsorship and three in the morning to talk about the meaning of what AA is and so on. And uh, we're now at the last meeting with this candle. This candle is kind of an interesting thing. It finally came about in the 1970s where we we lit a candle to start the marathon to indicate this light of the spirit, of it were as it were. And at the last meeting, it was taken from the marathon room to the main hall where the meeting was and one of the aspects of opening that meeting was blowing out the candle indicating we were now in the final stage. Now the morning meeting is going to be in here, isn't it? Our meeting this morning. So we won't have to go anywhere to blow it out anyway. But the... Uh, for, his, for a long time the 9 o'clock meeting, the final meeting, was conducted by Chuck Chamberlain. And it really was a big crowd would pour in. they just couldn't hardly get him in. And I was at the 8 o'clock meeting Seemed to be a lot of seats at that that meeting. (laughs) I think Johnny had the 7 o'clock meeting, just people getting up there and giving the address of the big book for an hour. Uh, And Harvey Andrews, I guess, had the 6 o'clock meeting only because he couldn't sleep at night and he was here, the only one up at 6. But this went on for some time, and then Chuck got sick and passed away, of course, and we all moved up one. And uh, and now Johnny is nervously waiting. Uh, Well, Millie Greenberg and I are staying young. But the subject this morning is feeling different. And you know, it's an interesting thing. You look at the last three leaders this morning. We have Harvey Andrews, who has uh, been married a number of times. <laughs> if I'll tell you something, to tell you one of, the, one of the tragedies of getting old. Harvey and I were sitting together at the banquet last night at the head table. Um, I was helping him stay awake and he was helping me stay awake. But right, at the head table, and uh, we were talking about a girl he had married 25 years ago. I sponsored her. He moved to West LA and eloped he with her. And neither one of us could think of her name. <laughs> now, that tells you something. I had to go. I had to go down and ask Millie Greenberg her name. She's Judy. Oh yeah, I <laughs> know. But here's, now you must admit, his case is different. You can tell that. And at 8 o'clock, we had the ex-convict uh, who uh, was in prison and not a very nice type. And uh, his closest identification is Don Newcomb, who's a bad type in himself. And, uh, you know, he's not like most of us decent people. And then Now at 9 o'clock, you have a leader who... I still think holds the records for most electric shock treatments get gotten at Big Spring State Hospital in Big Spring, Texas. I could test light bulbs for a year afterward. (laughs) And you think, well, certainly these people are different. Of course they're different. No no wonder they feel different. They're able to talk about But as as we all come to understand that uh, that's not the difference we're talking about here at all. Those are not the differences. I sometimes think about things like, a few years ago, a guy I sponsored him, I was dead now, so I could mention his name. But he had, a, he had a very famous American playwright who had written some great stuff. He wrote Pulitzer Prize and award-winning stuff, and he wrote uh, Goodbye, Little Sheba, an AA story. And this guy had been sober in AA 12 years in New York, and then he got drunk, and he could not get sober again. He could not get sober again. And he said, will you go up and talk to him? So I said, sure. So I went up to his house after work in the afternoon and made an appointment. And I went to his big swank mansion in the Hollywood Hills. And the the butler let me in and introduced me to the inside maid who took me to this master bedroom, which is enormous. And on the walls, there's an Academy Award, New York... uh, theater awards every kind of award you could get emmys everything just anything you, you strive for this lovely ornate white bedroom all white rugs and white everything and in the bed a little huddled man with his teeth out so he wouldn't choke laying there and uh... the thrust of our conversation uh, the final thrust of our conversation was he uh... he finally told us that uh... he told me that but you don't understand my case is different Just as different as if he'd been in prison or hospitals or anywhere else. As a matter of fact, he finally got sober. He got sober and he started coming to our meetings. And some of us remember him. You remember, don't you? And uh, he did quite well. And then he got feeling a little bad again. And he started to beyond that behind that, but you don't know my case is different story. And we tried to talk him out of it, but he... He'd been so successful, he knew that his case truly was different, and we wouldn't understand. And On Saturday, one Saturday morning, uh, he called up and said, I, I'm not going to be able to... He used to come to the yard. He didn't play, but he used to come and watch. I just want you to know I'm not coming to the yard to watch today, because I'm really having a good depression. And I said, you better call Maurice. He said, no, I don't think I need to call Maurice. I'm going to call my psychiatrist, because he will... Uh, He understands the nature of my illness. I know you people mean well, but you don't really understand. I said, "You're doing well, Bill. Why don't you just?" Yeah. So he uh, he didn't come, and that night he didn't come to the meeting. And the next morning we opened the Times and said, "Pulitzer Prize award-winning writer commits suicide. He just thought and realized how different he was." About eight o'clock that night, he put a bullet in his head, just like that. And you see a lot of that because to me. It has nothing to do with what you have or what you don't have on the outside. We talk about that a lot, but it is what you have on what makes you so different on the inside. I don't suppose there is anything in the world that is more, in my opinion, more general to alcoholics. It may be to other people I don 't know about other people but general to alcoholics than coming here with that feeling of difference. I've never heard an AA talk who didn't talk in one way or another, that they always, they felt different, or they didn't fit in, or they didn't feel good, which is one of the great reasons they drank. And they get sober, and they still don't feel like they fit in. And you just get the feeling that, when will I ever change, this, this AA is wonderful, but I'm not like that. And so they have, in some places, for people who feel, they have a severe reason for feeling different. They have kind of special interest groups. They have groups of doctors. So a doctor can come and say, I'm a doctor. I'm not so different. There are other sober doctors. And there are lawyers. And there are airline pilots. And there are actors. I remember when I was about two years sober. And these people, all do they get together. And they have meetings. And they talk about the special problems they have because of their occupation. When I was about two years sober, I really... Uh, around uh, the... I used to live around a club in Beverly Hills and for the... they had this actor's meeting. And Oh, God, I wanted to go that. I mean, I, I try to be slick, but I'm from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and I just... When I see them, I try to look unimpressed, but I... Until I got sponsoring, someone realized how dreary they really were, but... But I really, uh, I did everything I could. You had to be invited to this meeting as a, as a famous actress. Usually, I get a little further into my anecdotes than that. But uh, before they leave, but I sucked around people I just hated, and I was nice to you I know, just hit with a rock, and just just to get that invitation, and finally I got an invitation. Oh, so thrilled! I'm going to go over. There this guy's ornate garage which is better than most houses in Beverly Hills and, and I went up Monday night and sat there and it really was just what it claimed to be all half the actors I'd ever seen in movies were sitting in that room just one after another just big stars and all and they went around the room and I felt kind of sheepish I had about two years sobriety and did me my front teeth and, <laughs> and they went around the room and and I was just thrilled and they got around to me and I, I said some stupid little thing and And on the way home, it suddenly struck me. These guys have been meeting there for six or seven years. And they were famous for their meeting. But I had the most sobriety in the room. Because they all understood each other's slips. Because their case was different. Because they were actors and they couldn't stay sober the way ordinary people do. And that's the way it is with special interest groups. That's what makes those special interest groups so unpleasant in AA. That's why we warned against special interest groups. Because they reinforce the feelings of being different. Yes, I, I am sober, but I am different. And this terrible feeling of difference is is, a, is an almost insurmountable barrier. I see people die from alcoholism over the last few years in my job. And I see people die in the street and sidewalks. And I'm surrounded by people who, uh, who don't, can't seem to live in the world. And I suppose... I've talked to, I used to talk to a lot of them. I don't talk so much anymore because I realize it has to come from them. But the one thing that always seems to come up, but my case is different. I don't know anything that is more common to people with a problem like ours. And that's what makes uh, it so strange to people around us. You know, we talk about alcohol problems and and alcoholics. There seem to be different Nobody ever knew much about alcoholism. When Bill Wilson wrote this book, he had kind of a he had kind of a gut feeling that he couldn't he had no education in it, but he, that there was different types of alcoholics because he mentions in this book again in the our type of alcoholic. He doesn't know what any other other types are, but he knows that our type. And there seems to be general. We seem to have come to understand, at least in my opinion, various some various types of alcoholics because we see them in life. We see people who apparently to the naked eye are alcoholics. They drink, and they drink badly, they get and have bad, you know. But when something bad happens, or really captures their attention, these people are, are able to quit. And they say, oh man, after that accident, I never drank again. Or after my little son died, I never drank again. Or after I lost my family, I never drank again. And we've all heard cases like that and then there's another type of alcohol, and they just seem to live without drinking and there's another type of alcoholic, apparently they are people who become physically addicted to alcohol they become, you know certainly some alcohol of all types become physically addicted, but these people become physically addicted and they need hospitalization to get off it and that's why it's so often you hear about people going to hospitals and yet on the other hand we hear a lot of people who don't go to hospitals But people who go to hospitals, like, for instance, Schick Shadel in in Washington years ago had a claim that they could uh, get people to return to normal drinking. When they realized that couldn't happen, they now have a program. They still advertise. "We We will stop your alcoholism in seven days. And a number of successes. They have a number of successes. People who have gone there have been medically withdrawn from alcohol addiction and they don't want any more of it and they stay away from it from then on and so we all know cases like that yes he used to drink but he got off it and then there's this other group which we call of our type which is baffling not only to the people around us but to ourselves because we know we should be able to do what they're doing god that guy got off my mother's uncle leo i heard about him when i was drinking as a young man he got sober in 1924, i guess through the church. And, you know, I used to hear about him in the 1940s when I was drinking. My mother would say, Remember Uncle Leo? He used to drink like you, but he doesn't drink anymore. Let Uncle look at Uncle Leo? And I, I couldn't put it together, but I realized now what it was. I don't think he smiled after 1924. You know, I just. <laughs> and, uh,. His, his wife would keep reminding him what he did in 1920, you know. <laughs> Remember that time, Leo, 1920, we ran the Model T in the ditch? I thought, well, he's, he's got more strength than I got. I'm not... Bad. But I see people quit drinking. I And I'm sure most people in this room have done that. I have tried to quit drinking and gave it everything I had. I gave it everything I had. And eventually the time came when I... The one time I ever really tried to stop, and I felt so bad because my son had died when I was in jail. And I stopped drinking. And the net result was my life became so terrible I couldn't stand it and I didn't blame it on anybody or anything just my life was terrible the job I liked had become hideous to me the people around me I hated my children who I was doing it for I couldn't stand their noise they irritated me their grating noise and I knew I shouldn't be like this I wanted to get out of this state and I wanted to get out of here and there was no way out and I felt so guilty about my son I just but I would promised on his casket I wouldn't drink again and I didn't and what do you do then and I uh, one day, my wife took the children to church, and I just pulled the car in the garage and hooked up an exhaust pipe on the car and went to sleep and died. I didn't know what else to do. And some guy found me in the car dead, briefly, and pulled me out and breathed my chest and breathed my mouth and got me to the hospital. I went to the state insane asylum. But they, but that's that's what happens when I stop drinking. Now why? And people say, if you'd only stop drinking, you'd be all right and right inside of me the voice always says as it says in me as i'm sure it says in you but you don't understand my case is different the universal cry i have never been accepted apparently like other people other people don't seem to i don't seem to blend in the things i have aren't the things i want the things i want i can't have the things i have i don't want the the situations are different i i feel less than I never really understood this so clearly as in the last few years since I've been in AA and listening to inventories. I, uh, when, I when I was about six months sober, I, I felt so bad, and I had a sponsor who was rather strong, and he insisted I write an inventory, and I almost didn't, because I'd almost rather kill myself than. Because I've taken my inventory to the psychiatrist. What good is it going to do to take me with the out of work actor who doesn't, you know, he means well, but he just, uh, he's a nice. But I felt so bad. I finally wrote in an, it. He got me so upset that I wrote an inventory, and I was so upset. I wrote down things I had never told a soul and never was going to tell a soul. I wrote terrible, dirty, rotten, petty things. You know, I don't mind talking about being in the nut houses and the jails and doing this. But the little chicken shit things, the rotten, slimy, dirty little things. <laughs> oh, I hope I never get that upset again. People. People would say to me, "Well, why, don't you, why wouldn't you tell your psychiatrist these things that you put in your inventory?" Very simply, when you're paying that kind of money, you can't afford rejection. That's why. You know, you did what, sir? Get out of my office. Wash off that chair on the way out. Uh, but I put this terrible thing down, and then I went on a. A week later, I'd I'd hidden the paper under the back seat of an abandoned car I was living in, and my sponsor came by and, and insisted I'd go with him in his car and we went to uh, Oxnard along the ocean he gave me a flashlight and I read this hideous thing and I didn't want to read it I mean I wanted to skip over just oh god and I knew when we got to he'd make me get out of his car and we got to Oxnard and I finished it And he reached over and he patted me on the back and said that's the best thing you've done since you got sober kid and I couldn't believe it I understand what he means now but there are things that made me totally different and I, uh, I look back now, and I, uh, in the last 40, 38 years now, since so uh, I started listening to inventories, I've listened to maybe over 200 inventories, most of them on that same highway, stretch of highway, with some other boob over there with a flashlight and a... Well, let me explain this part before I read it. <laughs> yeah. And you really get an insight in listening to a lot of inventories on how similar, how similar we all are at that level. How similar we all are at that level. In my opinion, a good inventory is always the same. The specifics vary, but it's always the same. Lack of self-worth, guilt, feeling different, and occasionally lashing out at the world to punish them for why they're hurting me. And it's always the same thing. The very things vary. As I often say, one week I heard uh, an inventory, I think on a Monday night, from a woman who was, whose father was the, one of the two or three best-known men in the 20th century. And a few days later, I listened to a guy named Ramon Pena, who, born under a bridge in El Paso, didn't ever know who his father was. And their, their inventories were exactly the same. And she lived in a penthouse in Beverly Hills, and he. Uh, he was just out of the Washington State Penitentiary. But their specifics had nothing in common, but it's always that same thing, that feeling of difference, less than, g- guilty, uh, feeling different, uh, lashing out at the world to try to hurt them. And this is a condition force that stays with us, and we just I discovered and I'm sure you do too, that stopping drinking, on the, on the whole, stopping drinking, all it does is bring that feeling back because I have no idea that for people like me an alcoholic of this type that they're talking about the thing that makes me an alcoholic is that alcohol has an unnatural effect on me and the unnatural effect is that it nearly always eases off those feelings it eases off guilt it eases off feeling less than I don't know anybody that I know of who drinks like I do who hasn't had the feeling of just feeling terrible and having a few drinks and just feel it course into your body and your fingers tingle and, ah, it's so nice to be something at night after being a wussy all day at work. <laughs> just, it's just, and wonderful things happen sometimes. You, you can feel like something. You get to be a fighter some nights and some nights you get to be a lover and some nights Old beasts become beautiful before midnight. <laughs> and when I'm sober, and then I do things that I'm ashamed of, and I determine to change it, but when I'm sober again, I can't do it. I was much surprised after being in and out of AA for years, knowing that AA worked, knowing that AA was fine. I went to AA in a lot of places. But the one thing I always knew, my case is different. My case is different. Why is my case different? Because damn it, my problem isn't alcohol. And that's really what it boils down to. That's the bottom line in coming in here. My problem isn't alcohol. My problem is a series of feelings and emotions and feeling different and less than and unloved and don't care and I never got a good break and people don't understand me. And when I drink, I feel better. And when I don't drink, I feel worse. Just that simple. The one thing I always knew, I could not be an alcoholic. I drank like an alcoholic. I could sit in AA meetings and tell drinking stories with anybody. I could talk about hospitals and jails and nuthouses. I could talk about being in a straight jacket. I could talk about getting 36 electric shock treatments. I could talk about a lot of things. But the one thing down deep inside of me, the one tattered piece of integrity I had left that I hadn't sold out was I can say I'm an alcoholic, I never minded saying I was an alcoholic I'm an alcoholic because I knew I wasn't, it was just a shock if they have, have said is there anybody here who secretly feels they're crazy <laughs> there's one back there I think because <laughs> that's what I secretly felt, I felt there was something terribly wrong with me that's one of the great reasons, of course, that this feeling of difference that is so lethal in, in uh, for people like me, psychoanalysis. Our speaker, Friday night, was referring to uh, to it a little bit. He quoted me as saying something that was pretty close. But, you know, the thing about psychoanalysis for people like me, uh, now, did Ray V said was he a secular psycho, psychologist, psychoanalyst? Yeah, psychotherapist. Oh, well, that's right. He went home early. He he came what he heard to hear. But I, I went to a psycho psychotherapist, psychoanalysis, and what it does for people like me, it doesn't. It what it does. There's a positive side. It gets rid of guilt. And I'll tell you how psychoanalysis for people like me gets rid of guilt. Just Gets rid of guilt for some people, just like inner child gets rid of guilt for some people. It an- convinces me that I am and have always been a victim. It's not my fault. I never was loved. I never was cherished. I never was taken care of. People who should have helped me didn't, and on and on. And so it really isn't my fault. It's their fault. So even whatever I do, it's only because I was programmed this way, so you can't blame me. And that's a nice thing to have, except. There's The little price tags you pay for that, you don't see at the time, but you see them in retrospect. The price tag that you you become consumed little by little with resentments over the people who failed you. Going back to your parents 50 years ago, whatever it might be. If only my mother and father had treated me well. If only they'd have seen that I needed these extra things. If only they'd have been nurtured. If only that girl, if only that guy, you know, on and on. When you go to these kind of meetings, they're not like AA meetings, I'll tell you. They don't sit and laugh in the meetings. They come out of there, and they're intense. Because they have reinforced and intensified resentment. And, of course, the other thing, of course, is that is that you have to come to accept the fact that you're terminally different. You're, never, you're always going to be this way. You're never going to change. I never really understood that I heard one of their gurus say one time, We are like trees. When we were sapling, someone destroyed our insides and our outsides are fine, we group the total trees, but inside of us there's still rottenness because we were not treated correctly. So you have to accept the fact that no matter how you look, you're going to be different and less than and inadequate. And the third price tag you pay, which is quite obvious when you think about it, intermittent but intense self-pity. God, I could have been something. If only I could have... If only they would have, if only, and there isn't a person in the world that doesn't know that, I mean, in this group, I wouldn't think, who doesn't know that feeling sometimes. And that's another thing you get out of drinking. Sometimes you really feel sad, and you don't want to feel better, you can sit and drink and cry. If I only, if I only married that girl, I. but I never got her name. No, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, if I only had to change. And this is what the therapy I know. And so I come to AA like everybody else comes to AA, I'm sure, with a feeling of intense difference. uh, The one difference I could not accept is this. I was like an alcoholic in so many ways, but the one thing was different. Unlike alcoholics, their problems are when they drink, they have upsets and pains and heartaches. When I get sober, I have upsets and pains and heartaches the worst pain of my life is when I try to stay sober. And I heard this book read, and I read this book, and I skimmed and did this and that. It's the funny thing about this book, I should tell you if you're kinda new, and maybe if you're old too, but I read that book several times over the years. But in the last few years I've been reading in a book study. We have a book study in West LA. And when you read that book in a book study for 20 minutes, there are things in there I never read before. Because instinctively, when you're a reader, your eyes skim over what looks to be dull. And, uh, but when you have to read it out loud, you have to make it all meaningful. And I, I, I watched that book. That book specifically states things that I thought I learned on my own 25 years ago, 40 years ago. Just it ta- It's a building thing once you understand it. It really is remarkable. But this book talks about cases like mine. And they say things like... There are, at times, there's no adequate defense against the first drink for people like us, for alcoholics of our type. Why is there no adequate defense against the first drink? Because if I don't drink, I'm going to go crazy. That's why. Or I'm going to kill myself, or I'm going to do something terrible. Now, what kind of an alcohol problem is that? That is not an alcohol problem. And it takes a while longer to do what you've heard from this podium and many podiums this weekend, To allow yourself to be driven to take actions that you do not believe in so you can survive here long enough for no apparent reason except that the ones who survive discover this. I somehow hurt so bad, I did some things I wouldn't ordinarily have done and I stayed here long enough to realize that I was not so different after all. I suppose of all the gifts I've ever received in my life, The greatest gift is when I stayed here sober for a while after I was sober, long enough to gradually come to understand there's a name for my condition. And it is not an alcohol problem. It is something called alcoholism. Which sounds the same if you're kind of new, but it's tremendously different. Tremendously different. And it's that way all over the world. People come here and die. They die they're dying around us in Los Angeles, where LA, I think, is generally accepted as the best AA in the world. There's no place like it. You're in the you know, there are still people who think, well, how about how about Akron? You know, how really is. Akron has the same relationship to AA that Bethlehem has to Christianity. Something nice happened there once, but not for a long time. Yeah. There are more sober alcoholics in Southern California than in New York and Illinois combined. And the quality of AA is remarkable in, in Southern California. All kinds of lively groups. Yet there are people dying in AA groups all around Southern California because they've gone to groups and stayed in groups where they preach the same monotonous, downbeat stuff you hear in the failures all over the country. Well, you put the plug in the jug and you just kind of don't drink can you go to meetings and and God most of us slippers have done that till we died from it. The point is you have to come to realize that my the problem is not alcohol. If alcohol were the problem there'd be no need for a convention here. We'd all just stop drinking and go home. The problem here is that for people like me, and I presume like you if you're in this room, that stopping drinking eventually makes your life unbearable. So that is the big, that's the big thing. The one thing that made me feel different was the thing that makes me fit in here. But who would ever... You can't find that out right away. The greatest gift I ever got was discovering that I was an alcoholic. Because when I became an alcoholic, my feelings of being different diminished about 80%. I don't suppose I'll ever get over feeling different. I don't suppose you'll ever get over feeling different. There are times when you don't feel different. I'm just one with the world. But wait till the next time you're crabby, or someone hurts your feelings, or your boss looks at you funny, or you're screwed again. Uh, I knew it all along. I am yeah. But if you got some kind of a program, you march through that and you go on to the next event, hopefully. I was going to commit suicide, but i got to make coffee Friday, so should I... <laughs> And when you are not so different, I suppose also the great the second great thing comes with that is something that would seem so remarkably strange. but the concept i I was able to gradually come to believe that God could stand me. because when you're alone, hearing words about God is meaningless. When I was a boy, like most people, I was raised in a strict church, and I was a sinner. I broke all ten Commandments eventually. I used to say that I, d- I didn't break all Ten Commandments. I've never coveted my neighbor's manservant. But, of course, living in L.A., I say, yet. Uh, but I knew I was a sinner, and people talk about God to me, and I didn't want to hear it. The stronger belief you had in your boy, the worse, the, worse, the more guilty you feel, the more sinner you feel. And that's the, one of the great things: is that when I found a name for my condition, I began taking actions that I didn't believe in. Well, among the other things that changes little by little, you begin to—I'll tell you—the toughest jury I've ever had to face is right inside my head. That's why I think it's possible, like Ray was talking this morning, to have a lot of things and a lot of people have a lot of things, and they're terribly uncomfortable, because I think people like us. Have a jury that says, you're unworthy, you son of a bitch. And you, you just can't justify good things. The hardest thing I know of is to work hard enough to justify the good things you get so you don't feel bad about them. If you listen to inventories, you find again and again people start to get things and they screw it up, start to get things and they screw it up, start to get things and they screw it up. It's almost as though their head is saying, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Because I believe people of our type have two, at least two forces within us among a million more There's a Puritan in me that, to me, good is good, and bad is screw it. And there's nothing in between. And one of the great problems of my life, I've tried to be good. I've worked on being good and fought to be good and missed. So my reaction is to set the goals higher. Just can't do it. Just can't do it. It's an interesting thing in Alcoholics Anonymous to learn that one of the things you can do here is lower your goals. Lower your expectations. Lower what is good. Mm. Shit. <laughs> and one day you're doing pretty good. But to lower that, this perfectionism has been talked about many times. You know, in the 1950s, Yale University had a big study of alcoholics, the big clinical study of all time. They studied people of all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of uh, sociological backgrounds and intellectual backgrounds and economic backgrounds. And they had known alcoholics being tested against known non-alcoholics and, then, for example, they'd give them each two drinks see if they can see a difference. They give the alcoholics two drinks then the non alcoholic two drinks and see if they can see a difference and, uh, would you want to be an alcoholic in that test you know <laughs> well that's all our tests for today bullshit it is yeah. but but they, they, they have a big report this thick but simmered down to the last they have two things that they cannot understand one one, they cannot understand is that all the known alcoholics rank in the top five percentile of perfectionism. And secondly, the alcoholics, for some reason, they cannot, shouldn't be. Their, their personality profile changes after drinking. It should never do that. It should be get a little dulled, perhaps. But, but no one ever understood that I become a different person when I drink. You know, the guy who wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Robert Louis Stevenson? He was an alcoholic. And, uh, you know, the story, if it's true, and I believe it's true, his wife said to him, well, Robert, you write such nice things, Treasure Island and so on, how did you get an idea for such a thing as this? He said, came to me in a dream, dear. <laughs> and I'll bet it did. I'll bet it did. A lot of dreams. Because, you know, in there, the, the concept is just like you and I know. I understand that concept exactly. There's a doctor who's very good, but he wants to know what it's like to be evil. So he mixes up this crap and drinks it, and becomes evil. And you learn one thing from that, never drink out of a glass that smokes. You know, bad thing. And he goes, bees, is evil for a while, then he goes, has a drink, and goes back to being the doctor again. And it's fun, it's just, I've done that a million times on weekends, haven't you? Well, it's time to go be evil. <coughs> yeah. And what destroyed Dr. Jekyll, of course, is when he lost control of when he was going to be evil. He would start being evil without intending to, and that's happened in everybody I know like me. As long as I'm able to control my escape, I'm, it's great, and I can do it. When I've lost control of the escape, and I can't stand going back, and I, can't be, I can't be good, and being bad is killing me, and there you are, and my feelings of difference. So it really synthesizes down to this, all of the things we do. All of the actions we take here that seem to have no application to a deep problem i think we have to start with this premise i must continue to take actions that remind me and guide me into continuing to believe that i'm truly an alcoholic of our type that i'm one of the great reasons for meetings is doing that you know the meetings originally started in akron they didn't start to help anybody stay sober they started so that they would have some place they could bring newcomers to prove there were people actually staying sober look there are 8 people in this room and never saw anything like that and over the years they've evolved into different purposes and the meetings have become places where you go and they become partially social, partially uh, into educational partially uh, fun things to do partially kind of going go to class again but primarily overall they are designed to re- to refocus me little by little on a continuing basis, like driving down the road. Now, how straight the road is, you don't hold the wheel like that. No matter how straight the road is, it's a continual thing like that. And that's the way it is with my emotions. Even when I'm doing the best I know how and feeling well, i got to keep those reforming. Because the purpose of that enables me not to let that feeling of being different consume me. I don't think I will ever get over the feeling of being different. Nor will you, in my opinion but I have a way to cope with it and deal with it and make it, put it out of the way for a long time. One of the great values of working with others. When I'm thinking about that person, I'm not thinking about me. That's the greatest thing I know about working with other people. Sure, there's great ego gratifications of saying, oh, yes, that's my baby, and I gave him a cake, and he's got so many years, and all. (laughs) That's all very nice, but that's not what we're looking for. I mean, we look for it because we're human. But the thing is, when I'm thinking about you, I'm not thinking about me. And I, I stop being different at all when I'm working with you, and little by little, I'm doing something of beyond my ability to do it sometimes emotionally. But you do it little by little. I, uh, I feel so sorry for people who can do not have tools to do with that terrible deal, tools to deal with that terrible feeling of being different. That's why I think the greatest number one reason for staying active in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you may stay sober. I was talking to an Al-Anon last night at the banquet. She said her husband got sober in 1974. And he stayed, he went to meetings for two years. And he's not gone to a meeting since. I said, huh. She said, and I don't think he's been comfortable ever since either. I guess there are some people who can do that. But I'm too weak. I, I, I have to feel good. Like that phrase in the book, we are like people who absolutely must have some feelings of goodness, feel good, have some anticipation of it. And that's why we share our experience, strength, and hope with each other. You know, all my life, all my, much of my life, I've had people, well-meaning people, friends of my family, doctors, psychiatrists, lawyers, bosses, come over and say, I know you're having a tough time. I know how you feel. And you say, thank you. But you want to just say, get your hands off me. You don't know how I feel. Nobody knows how I feel anywhere I know. And the greatest gift you will get in AA is if you do these things and you throw yourself into it and continue to do so, not only do it like that guy did till 1974, but continue to do it, you'll discover, first of all, eventually some old fool will come over one day and say, I know how you feel. And you think, my God, he does know how I feel. And that's the first rope across the abyss. And then comes a little catwalk, and then comes a little road, and then comes an eight-lane superhighway eventually, where there's a connection between them and me, and I'm not alone. But to this day, I have to remember that, because some days, I don't care how long you've been sober, I don't care how much you know, I don't care how well-known you are, how, how good a job you have, whoever it is, there are days in which it just creeps up and grabs you. There are just days after... I have a lot of wisdom. I pray a lot. I've come to believe in God. I believe a lot of things. But there are just days in life that are just come on midnight. There's no hope for this day. Just keep my mouth shut and try to get to a meeting and hope some son of a bitch doesn't say hello to me. (laughs) And eventually it gets better. And that's the great, that's the great fact for us. That's the great fact for us. We're we are not so different. Our book talks in great goals. But the most important thing is that last part of the chapter 5, they read all of that. Everybody in the world knows it by heart, you know. You know no one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. We claim spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. I must fight that perfectionism in me like I fight the desire to fail. And I, probably the greatest thing I take with me, and of all the, these great topics we've had, all the great speakers, we're going to hear another great speaker this morning, great dear lady, of my friend of mine from Miami. But of all the things we've heard this weekend, I've become more and more recently so caught up in 1950, you know, at the first international convention, they had a... Uh, they had a convention. One of the great reasons for that convention was to get people from various parts of the country so they would see they were not so different, because people were getting drunk all over, and they hated people. People in Los Angeles wouldn't correspond with the people in Akron, people in Chicago wouldn't correspond with the people in New York, people fighting, getting drunk, and they called this convention to try to get them to accept the 12 traditions. If we wouldn't have those, we would have gone down. So they had this because everybody felt so different. And uh, B- Dr. Bob said, We hope we could get them together. So they realized they're not so different after all. But in that convention, they had a lot of things. They had, a, they had six young guys, each took two traditions and got up and tried to convince the crowd that the 12 traditions were not bad to accept them. And they eventually did, and they were printed then. you got to remember, the 12 traditions, we sometimes blow them off. But they were. Accepted 15 years after AA started, and the only reason they accepted them is because AA was coming apart. But the, one of the great highlights of that convention, I still I have the tapes of that convention, was Doctor Bob, who was dying of cancer, and he, uh, they said, you shouldn't probably wouldn't want to talk, Doctor. He said, Oh yes, he said, I'm next to Bill. I've got the most sobriety in the world. He said, and I want these boys and girls to hear what I've got to say. And so they helped him with the podium at this meeting. Have a picture of that meeting, about the same number of people that were here. You know, it was not a big thing. And he started off by welcoming them, and he said he was glad that some small thing he had done some years before maybe he'd helped somebody stay sober. And he uh, wished they'd go back and tell the boys and girls at home that they weren't, you know, that there was a place to like this. Then he said, I would indeed be remiss if I didn't discuss two or three things which I find to be of extreme interest and a great help to me. And he said, Three little things that to me are, that's the Gettysburg Address of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've spoke all over the world. I've heard speakers all over the world. I've sat and talked to Bill Wilson for an hour. I've had a lot of exposure to a lot of wonderful things. But when you get down to the level of where the rubber beats the road, this is the spiritual, to me, the spiritual Gettysburg Address. He said, first, let's remember to keep our program simple let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes, which may be of interest to the scientist, but have nothing to do with our work here. When reduced to the last, our work here consists of love and service. And we all know what love is, and we all know what service is. And secondly, he said, let us guard that erring member the tongue and try to use it with kindness and understanding and love. And there is isn't a person in this room this morning who doesn't know what that means because we've all cut people with our tongues we wish we hadn't. And lastly, he said, let us never forget to take the time to stop and talk to the man behind us, to tell him a little bit about AA, to give him a pat on the back when he needs it. Let us never reach that stage of smug indifference when we don't have time to take a new man to a meeting because none of us would be here if someone hadn't done it for us. And these are the things that gradually make you feel part of things. Then he said a few more things, then he sat down, he was dead shortly thereafter. But in my opinion, that's what what all of this is about. When you do these things, your feelings of difference diminish. All human beings are going to feel different. What we have to come to realize here, we are all different on the outside, we look different, we act different, we sound different, but at a certain level, we are the same. The alcoholic in Cape Town, South Africa that I talked to is like the alcoholic in Oslo, Norway, like the alcoholic in Sydney, Australia, like the alcoholic in Santa Ana. I am... You don't understand. My case is different. Yes, we do understand, and your case is not so different, and you come to find that out. But the n- way to bring this about, all of these excellent meetings this weekend, all of these marathons devoted, dedicated persons getting up and doing the best they know how to com- communicate what they found. Our speakers, our al everybody. And it all is aimed at one thing, for us to stay here, to partake of this, to share it with people yet to come. And it all boils down to this. Let's keep our program simple. Let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes, which may be of interest to scientists but have nothing to do with our work here. Our work here consists of love and service. Let us guard that erring member of the tongue and try to use it with kindness and love. Let us never be too busy to stop and talk to the man or woman behind us. And tell them a little bit about AA. And I suppose tell them they're not so different. And give them a pat on the back when they need it. And to uh, let us never reach that stage of smug indifference when I'm too busy to take a new man to a meeting. Because none of us would be here if someone hadn't done it for us. If we could leave here this afternoon or this noon with those thoughts in our mind, we're well on our way to a good week and not having to feel different for quite a while. And I hope it happens for all of us. Thank you.